0: And look at one of the things that flows from the throne, Galatians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. This is the inerrant word of God, let's receive it with meekness. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Father God, we look to your word for... Uh, Blessing and encouragement you have said Sanctify them through your truth Your word is truth, Father We want to be sanctified We want to grow up in every area Into you Into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ And so I pray for your blessing upon my preaching And your blessing upon our hearing And our doing of this word In Christ's name, Amen You may be seated For those of you who are uh, new to the series uh, we've been showing it's very, very biblical to pray for prosperity. Uh, prosperity in our own lives, prosperity into the lives of uh, each other. And so far, uh, we looked uh, in our first sermon at uh, Third John. In fact, the theme verse for this series is Third John 2. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And I hope you got that thing memorized by the time we get through the series. Um, uh, And we looked at seven characteristics of the kind of prosperity that God uh, delights in giving to his people in that passage, and we had a lot of scriptures we can hang our faith on. Now, last week, we started in this Galatians passage uh, looking at the eight laws of harvest. We didn't get very far. We only got through law of harvest number one. And... Uh, we looked at a number of other scriptures showing that first principle that you only reap when there has been sowing and why it is many times we violate that law obviously as farmers we don't when we're scattering the seed but in the spiritual realm many times we violate that law let me just quickly review the ten principles for you first of all don't eat all your crop you gotta scrimp and save so that you have something to plant or invest second watch your timing don't follow the crowd Third, plan your investments, but don't overplan. Fourth, know your fields. You've got to study them. Fifth, only plant when the fields are ready. Sixth, don't put all of your hope in one crop. You've got to diversify. Seventh, plant something. Eighth, monitor your investment. Ninth, don't plant or eat the first fruits or the tithe. And tenth, trust God. Don't allow the fear of risk to keep you from investing. Now today we get to the second law of harvest, and I apologize, I got this finished late last night. We don't have any handouts uh, for you, but I'll try to announce the points as we get to them. But this law of harvest is that we reap the same kind that we sow. If you look at verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Okay, you reap exactly the same kind that we sow. And the first thing that we see about this law, this is the first major subpoint, is this really works. This is a universal principle. Uh, he says whatever we sow. Ritterboss comments on that word whatever. He says it holds for everybody and everything he does and that is no exaggeration. And I uh, let me just trace it through in four subpoints. <clears throat> first of all, we can see this principle in creation. It was a part of God's very created order. Uh, In Genesis chapter 1, God's repeated command to various things was that they multiply after their own kind. And he not only gives this command, but he also makes declarative statements. This is the way things are. This is the way things are going to be Work In um, uh, verses 11 through 12, we see the command with respect to grass and seed plants and trees. Uh, In verse 21, we see the same command with sea creatures and birds. Verses 24 through 25, the land creatures, and so we can see it's embedded in God's, the very fabric of God's creation. doesn't matter if you get corn and you get squash seeds and you mix them together in the bag, uh, they won't be confused. You plant them, they will grow according to their seed, okay? Uh, Very straightforward uh, principle of law. We cannot confuse the seeds by labeling them differently. We can't wish differently. That's why it's called a law, okay? They're invariable. And this law continued to apply after the fall when sin was introduced and when thorns and thistles were introduced into the environment. Okay? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, and who's the one man, kids? Just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Says so there's no exception. Everyone inherits the sin nature of Adam, because like begets like. Romans 5.18 says, Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. There are no exceptions. As Eliphaz says, They that plow iniquity, sow wickedness, reap the same. And so that law was not overturned by the fall. It was not overturned by redemption. There is a common uh, theory uh, that's current in churches today that uh, once you're saved, that law is done away with. Absolutely not. There is no doing away with any of the laws of harvest. Genesis 3.15 shows that even though the prophesied Messiah would come and would reverse the fall, the laws of harvest would continue. It's just that God introduces something that is new. As he told Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit." He's saying an unbeliever can't contribute anything to his salvation because he doesn't have the Spirit. Okay? It's the Spirit that gives life. And Galatians six indicates, even after we are saved, that law continues to apply. The flesh produces flesh, the spirit produces spirit. Okay? In other words, he's indicating the things we can do in our own strength don't contribute at all to God's kingdom. They do not last. It's only what the spirit does that produces, like produces like. John 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Okay, you can't get anything of worth out of our out of our flesh. And uh, yet, how often do we seek to contribute to God's kingdom simply by our fleshly endeavors? You know, the only kind of sowing into the kingdom, let's take an example of money. You're sowing, you're giving money into the kingdom. The only kind that's going to last is that which is given by faith uh, to God's glory, motivated by love. It's seeking his kingdom. And as you sow that money to the Spirit, as it were, and trust to him, he says, it will. But if we just give so that others can see us, he says, it's not going to count at all. will not count. When we read a book without any sense of the need for the Spirit's discernment, what we're doing is we're sowing to the flesh. Um... When we uh, go on a trip without any prayer for God's blessing, we're sowing to the flesh. Uh, You can expend great efforts in your community and for your church, but if you're not seeking to glorify God by the power of the Holy Spirit, what's happening is it's just going to be hay, wood, and stubble that will be burned up at the second coming. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which gives a commentary on this principle. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uses um, the sowing metaphor, also uses the building metaphor, but gives the same conclusion. <clears throat> and uh, let's read verses 5 and following. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And we're going to be seeing uh later uh we have responsibilities of planting watering and harvesting but the increase is always in god's hands. that's the principle he's alluding to here so then verse 7 so then neither he who plants is anything nor is he who waters but god who gives the increase now he who plants and he who waters are one and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor for we are god's fellow workers You are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Anyway, he goes on. He's saying exactly the same thing (coughs) that Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8 is saying, that only what is sowed to the Spirit is going to last. All the rest is going to corrupt. It's going to rot. So under the first principle we learned it's universal, it worked under the time of creation, it continued to work after the fall, it continued to work after redemption. Let's look uh, finally under this first point that it is something that applies absolutely everything, an absolute law that applies to absolutely everything. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, he applies it to the pastor, sowing seed into the lives of the people. In Galatians 6, 6, it's the reverse, he applies it to the people, sowing uh, good things into the lives of his pastor. In Galatians 6.10, he applies it to mercy ministries, inside the church, outside the church. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Matthew 13 applies it to the word of God being sown. In the verses 1 through 23, then he applies it to allowing unbelievers in the church. Uh, as 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 members in Proverbs 26:27, it says, "When you're mean to others, meanness will come back and it will bite you." Uh, Psalm 7 verse 15 says, "When you are treacherous to others, eventually there will be others who will be treacherous to you." Verse 16 says, "Violence breeds violence." Christ says, "Those who live by the sword will die by the sword." James 3:18 says, "The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." In other words, the only way you're going to have peace in your family, peace in society, is if you're doing the work of planting peace into that kind of a situation. And so this is something that applies to everything. It applies even to our riches that are stored up in heaven. There is a relationship between our riches here and the riches that we have there that gives us a jump start in the responsibilities for eternity. It applies, 1 Corinthians 15 says, even to our body. There is such a relationship, and hyper need to realize this, there is such a close relationship between uh, our heavenly resurrection bodies and our earthly bodies that he likens it to harvest, to a seed being planted. Now, it's way different as well, just like a seed is way different. I mean, an oak tree doesn't even remotely look like an acorn, does it? Uh, A a big towering um, bush... um, a uh, mustard tree doesn't look anything like the tiny, tiny little seed. And yet that principle of harvest is, is, is at play, that you reap the same kind that uh, you sow. And so it really does apply to absolutely everything that we do. And if we only would have eyes to look, so many people deny this principle, but if they would just look around them, they would see, wow, I can see this principle being lived out of my family. I can see it all across the board. And it begins to be exciting when you, when you notice that. Now let's go on to point a major, a second major point. Uh, Galatians six indicates there's a problem, and the problem is that we tend to be self-deceived. We tend not to recognize this principle. Notice the first words of verse seven: "Do not be deceived." Okay, Paul knows our self-deception. He knows us inside and out, and he knows that the tendency for humans is to want to to sow spiritual dandelions and harvest spiritual watermelons, okay? He knows our tendency to want to sin all day long and yet think, why shouldn't I receive good in my life, okay? We tend to be self-deceived. We don't apply that, I mean, we apply it when we're farming literal corn, but we don't apply it in any other area of life. And so he says, do not be deceived. Uh, We should not think that we can skip devotions in the morning without reaping a harvest, a negative harvest, because we're sowing to the flesh. Uh, If we're not trusting in the Lord. And that doesn't mean you can't uh, go through the the, the whole day with devotions. A person could skip devotions and have a constant awareness of God through the day and a dependence upon him. That's fine. You're sowing to the Spirit in that situation. But the point is that when we um, uh, fail to have bodily exercise, we shouldn't expect that our bodies are going to be okay. And yet yours truly and many others have many times violated that principle and thought, we'll be okay, you know, even though we're not sowing in that area of our life. Um, we, we neglect our children year after year and uh, figure we're not going to sow anything negative in their lives. Everything will turn out all right. Uh, I don't know if any of you heard the uh, song in the 70s I think Keith probably uh, has heard it. Uh, <clears throat> Chapin, something Chapin, Martin Chapin, uh, uh, "Cats in the Cradle" or something like that. Anyway, it's about a, a father who's neglecting his son through his whole life, and eventually his son becomes just like his father. You know, it's the, you're, you're sowing something into your children's lives, and it's going to eventually uh, be reaped. And we tend to be self-deceived about that. But the third main point is that our tendency is not only to be deceived, but to try to pull the wool over God's eyes. And I think that's the point of Paul in uh, Galatians 6, the next phrase, where he says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Okay, you can't pull a fast one on God. Uh, And I think we tend to do this. David tended to do that. David um, sinned with Bathsheba. And he asked for forgiveness. Many many times we say, okay, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness, and everything's okay. We act like it's just all washed away. Well, God says, yes, the sin's washed away. Your relationship with me is restored, but you can't do away with the laws of harvest. Those laws, you're going to reap bitter fruit. And what was the bitter fruit that David reaped in his life from that one dandelion seed that he planted? Well, he reaped uh, murder and incest and rebellion, and intrigue, and a son that attempted to kill him and overthrow the throne. I mean, he, he reaped a lot from one dandelion seed. We cannot do away with this principle of harvest. Now, what we can do is we can try to minimize that effect by digging up dandelions and keep digging them up until we've got a clean lawn. We can do that. We can minimize the amount, but there's always going to be an increased harvest. So unfortunately, David did not try to dig up the dandelions he had planted. You can see that he was very... Uh, what's it called, hands-off type of a father. But anyway, we're going down a rabbit trail. A church that does not invest in ministry as God commands is a church that mocks God's laws and will not be prospered. They're going to have lousy ministry and they're going to have lousy dividends, is what Paul is saying in Galatians. And so what we need to do is we need to very seriously take the ten principles we looked at last week under law number one. Now, the fourth main point is we need to be sowing with the end result in mind. We don't just sow for the sake of sowing. We sow because we want a harvest. Now, many Christians have heartburn over that. They think, well, that's, that's salvation by works. No, it's not. Rewards is not salvation by works. Uh, rewards is given by God's grace. He wouldn't have to give us rewards. He, he delights in doing it, but it's a part of God's harvest. And if you think that receiving rewards in time and in eternity is unbiblical, you need to read the Bible again. It's literally thousands and thousands of times in the Bible referred to. Now, I think the word reward probably only occurs around 70 or so times. But th- this idea that we need to be having the end result in mind, you find it everywhere. You find it in the scripture. And we need to be asking ourselves, if I, if I do this little sin here, What is the end result going to be? What kind of dandelions are going to be sprouting up all over my yard? Or on the positive side, we might be discouraged about uh, working, you know, with uh, opposing abortion in Omaha or, or doing other things in Omaha, and we need to realize, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to sow righteousness into this city, and I know, because God is a God who cannot lie, that my labors in the Lord are not in vain. Isn't you know, that the last verse of First Corinthians 15? Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. Okay, that's what he's saying. Don't get discouraged. We need to have the end result, the end in mind, uh, when, we are, when we are planting. Now the fifth point, and we're going to end with this, uh, this fifth point, is that I want to look at how this law applies to finances, to resources, to prosperity in general. We're going to look first of all at the application Paul makes in verse 6, application he makes in verse 10, and then we're going to make more general applications after that. Now, I'm emphasizing uh, what Paul is emphasizing because I think we have a tendency to space this off or to doubt that it really does apply to economics and things like that. Remember the passage we read last week from Mark chapter 10 that God said when we give up everything as a stewardship trust to God, he gives the same things back into our life, and he adds that little phrase, with persecution. In other words, it's not always going to be hunky-dory. There are going to be times you might be in prison, like Paul was in prison. Okay, There might be times when a forest fire devastates the forest. The laws of harvest will keep working. That forest will regrow. There will be times a farmer loses some things. But those are temporary setbacks. There is, uh, we we can count on this uh, working for us. And uh, we just simply cannot spiritualize away Mark chapter 10 because he says it's in this life he contrasts it with in heaven. And he talks about land and houses. Now let's just start with um, verse 6 then. Let him who is taught the word... Share in all good things with him who teaches. It's all good things, not just uh, money. It could include labor. It could include food. It could include the Zenith, the lawyer's uh, aid that he gave to the Apostle Paul. God rewards a person who invests his time and his labors in the pastor, and God rewards the pastor as he invests his time and his labors into the congregation. There's a reciprocal relationship that God has established uh, within the body. For example, the passage I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 3 indicates the kind of pastor you sit under will profoundly impact your life by way of this sowing-reaping principle. Uh, when, when you relocate to a job, you need to investigate, is there a pastor, is there a church in that city that's going to be sowing seeds into my lives? that's going to enable my family to spiritually prosper? Or is it going to be scant seed here and there that's going to give a scant harvest? Is it going to be pietistic? What kind of seed is going to be sowed? Paul indicated in 1 Corinthians 3, he called them, you are my field. He says, now I am sowing seed into your lives. And he was expecting a harvest to come in his direction, but he was also expecting his fruit to benefit the people that were there. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So he's generously investing into the the kingdom. Well, Galatians 6 says the reverse is true. To the degree that a congregation supports their pastor socially, emotionally, financially, he says that God will guarantee that there will be a reward and harvest in the congregation's life. Now, I think I have sinned against the church by failing to preach on this pastor. I, I, I've, been a, I've been a coward for years and years. When I was at Trinity, I think in the 12 years I was there, I only preached one time on the subject of money. Because I've, I've seen so many people abuse this, you know, and uh, be self-serving. I thought, well, this is going to be misinterpreted. Well, you're going to even misinterpret it this morning when I'm preaching, some of you maybe. And that's just the danger of being a pastor. But I think I will completely fail to preach Paul's main application of verse 6 if I don't show you the scriptures that say, as you invest into your pastor, God will invest back in. I mean, he will bring back into your life a harvest. It's a principle that's really exciting because you guys do invest in my lives, And I want you to have faith to claim from the Lord, yes, Lord, as I've invested in the pastor's life, I pray that your harvest would come to fruition with me so we're going to go through a number of different passages i want you to get your bibles out we're going to uh, kind of flip around if you would turn first of all to matthew chapter 10. this is a a passage that indicates why it is that we need to be receiving each other in the lord matthew chapter 10 and beginning at verse 40. says he who receives you he's talking to the apostles he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, right off the bat, he puts it within a spiritual context because he does not want us to see the relationship that you have to the pastor, to each other, on purely a horizontal human plane. Okay? He's wanting you to see that, that what we do to each other, we are doing to the Lord Jesus Christ because of his union with us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, He says, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Why is it that he rewards us when we're treating each other, why he rewards us as if we're treating Christ is because we are treating Christ. That's the kind of unity that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In fact, this this past week, uh, I think it was on my way back from uh, Glenn Durham's... uh, a church, we were having prayer together and I had the radio on. I think it was Elizabeth Elliot uh, was giving the story of um, a lady who was just really ticked off with Elizabeth Elliot because she had been given this, uh, this principle saying, you need to treat your husband as if he was Jesus and invest into his life. Don't just serve him as serving your husband. Serve him as serving Christ. She was really ticked off because he was a lazy bum. He was a drunkard. He lay on the couch watching TV all the time. But the Lord finally got a hold of her heart and she began investing into his life and began saying, whether he receives it or not, Lord, I know you receive it and I'm going to begin to serve you. And the incredible transformation that it brought to her own life as well as to his life. And I didn't catch the whole story because I was on to my next appointment, but uh, it was this principle being worked out. Now look at Christ's application of this principle in verses 41 to 42. He says, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. Okay, that's cool. When you receive a messenger of God, when you receive me in the Lord, what's happening is you are sharing in any rewards that the Lord might give to me. He goes on, he says, and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Well, that's cool too. That's reciprocity. A reciprocal relationship i couldn't pronounce the other one that means when i receive you when i treat you with honor and respect when i minister to you when i invest into your lives any rewards that you might receive from the throne of god i'm going to share in i mean there's a very exciting principle he goes on and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple assuredly i say to you he shall by no means lose his reward Now, here's what we need to ask ourselves. What is the reward of a prophet? What is the reward of a righteous man? What is the reward of a disciple? And you don't have to search very far in the Scripture before you discover, hey, God puts rewards. Just look up even the word reward, but the concept is everywhere. God gives rewards in this time, houses, lands, brothers, sisters, all kinds of things, and a generous addition in the life to come. Well, that means... If you are sharing in the rewards that the pastor has, there's going to be tangible here now rewards as well as rewards in eternity. Okay? And there's many many scriptures like this that talk about as we invest in each other's lives, the Lord blesses. Turn with me to Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. And I think as you minister to uh uh uh, people, I can't even think of frontline fellowships, uh, Peter Hammond, and you you minister to the Lynx and other people like that. It just gives a whole new dimension to Mercy Ministries. It gives a whole new dimension to, to giving. It is so exciting. I can't do the things Peter Hammond can do. I wish I could trek and go on the safaris and the things that he does. I can't do it. But hey, by investing in his life, I'm sharing in some of the rewards that he's accruing. It's just marvelous, marvelous teaching. Anyway, uh, take a look at Philippians chapter 4, and let's read uh, verses 14 through 19. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Uh, He must have had some kind of a need, and they sent money to him, the, uh, the book as a whole indicates. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the... Gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now we can't say that verse 18 is talking about tangible money that was given to support Paul, which almost everybody agrees. I think everybody agrees. That's what he's talking about. And then spiritualize verse 19 and say, okay, it's only referring to heaven. No, he's saying they had tangible needs right now, and the God who had supplied Paul's needs was going to supply their needs. They had given out of their poverty. And God says he was going to take care of their needs and more than their needs. And um, that's why he says in that, that earlier verse there that um, uh, that he wants, and um, I can't even find it, uh, but anyway, he wants it to be poured back uh, into their lives. Okay, why don't you turn on then to um, uh, the Galatians 6.10 principle, and if you turn with me to Psalm 41, the Galatians 6.10 principle is that it's not just giving to the pastor, but as you give in mercy ministries. It says do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. As you're engaging in mercy ministries, God says he's going to pour back into your life these principles of harvest. Well, here's one of many, many passages indicating that's exactly the way it works. Psalm 41, and let's read the first three verses. <clears throat> okay, it says, Blessed is he who considers the poor. Now, he's talking here about um, uh, mercy ministries. Uh, uh, uh taking care of the needs of somebody who's in distress in fact i think the margin indicates a helpless or a powerless person who's in need so you're engaging in mercy ministries what are the kinds of rewards what are the kinds of of harvest that your investing is going to do well he says the lord will deliver him in time of trouble you delivered the poor person during his time of trouble god says i'm going to deliver you it's like producing light. God will invest in your life in that way. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. This area of bringing <clears throat> some kind of uh, security and, uh, and help into his life. It's going to be reinvested to you. He will be blessed on the earth. Notice it's not just in heaven. He says the person who's engaged in mercy ministry he's going to be blessed on the earth while he's still living. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. And so he's talking about prosperity in every area of our lives. God pours back more, we're going to be seeing later, than we give. But here, marvelous, uh, uh, indication of this principle being lived out in our lives. Let me just quickly read you a few others. Luke 6.38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will it be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you again. Okay? Same law. Law number two at work. Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11 says, When we release poor people from their debt, God will pour back into our lives such blessing that there will no longer be any poor in your midst. Proverbs 19, verse 17 he who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. See the same law at work there? Not something else, but he will pay back what he has given. Now, what about heavenly rewards? People might think that's not the law of harvest at, at work. That's something totally different. But there again, I think there is a tangible relationship between the riches that we use for kingdom purposes down here below and the treasures that we lay up in heaven many scriptures say when you give to the poor you're going to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven sermon on the mount you can think of a number of others what is the relationship i do not think that is poetic language some people say well there isn't really treasures it's just poetic of the you know everybody's going to be happy and we're all going to be on the same plane no no it's just too pervasive in the scriptures uh to take that perspective in fact um one of the cohorts of, um, of, um, uh, um, oh, what's the guy's uh, uh, big shot with the curly hair that uh, does all the videos? Um. <laughs> anyway, one of his cohorts, you all know him. He, he's down in Florida, what's that? R.C. Sproul, yeah, one of his cohorts. Uh, ask me if you want to get a lot of the details on this re- reward principle. They've got a, a video series of the whole conference that was done on heaven and hell. Marvelous, incredible, incredible series of tapes talking about degrees of punishment in hell, but also talking about the rewards and the tangible relationship from earth to heaven. And what we need to realize when we get to heaven, we're still going to be limited creatures. We're not going to be like God. We're going to need resources. We're going to be subject to time, we're going to have limitations, and part of the limitations we're going to be having in heaven is how much treasures have we laid up while we're here on earth. While we're here on earth, we are setting up the, the resources that are going to last us for eternity. And if you don't have a lot of resources in heaven, yes, you'll be in heaven. But Paul says you're going to be way short-changed in the kinds of ministries, the kind of dominion that you're going to be taking. And all throughout eternity, we're going to be taking dominion. Probably not just on this planet, but probably all over the place. Who knows the degree to which it's going to go. But he says you're going to start off with a set measure, and it's going to depend on what you've done down here below. Okay, So it's a very tangible seed-harvest relationship, just like it is in time. Uh, we need to think think of those treasures in heaven as tangible resources that we are are, are laying up there. Now, here here's one other uh, uh, issue that we need to address. We should not think of this principle only in terms of what is possible. Okay, this goes way beyond the possible into into the miraculous. In fact, Bob shared with me a. Uh, a sheet of scriptures indicating the numerous times, let me just share a few with you, that God goes beyond that, does miraculous all the time. You know, we tend to be skeptics on this. Uh, we, we tend to doubt miracles all the time. I talk with other pastors about some of the things that happened. They say, well, it really wasn't a miracle. I doubt it, but they have no other explanation for it. Um, <clears throat> I, I, think that, I think it was a miracle what the Lord's done with our photocopy machine. Okay, very simple, tangible uh, type of a thing. Uh, Michelle's company, uh, gave it away because it was not working in, uh, in some different areas, uh, that were broken. I talked to Bishop's, uh, office equipment to see if some of these would, uh, would able to be fixed. Uh, and they said no, that they could not be fixed. And when we first had it for the first couple of weeks, uh, the, um, Document feeder didn't work. Duplexing didn't work. It was, uh, you know, it was getting jammed and things like that. So we prayed about it. It has not had a problem. All everything works. It has not had a problem in all the time that we've had it. So it's been a tremendous blessing. Well, a month ago, uh, we ran out of toner, and Bishop's office equipment says, you know, it's very expensive. Cost per copy. He didn't recommend investing the three hundred and fifty dollars or whatever it is for. Um, uh, getting another toner and drum and the whole uh, nine yards that goes into it, and so we've been waiting because there's a possibility we might be getting something something else. We don't know what the Lord's providing, but the the thing that says empty was empty for you know good long while, and it was producing copy that was almost illegible. So I try my trick, you know, in, at the old place. You shake it and you get a little bit more out of it, and I tried that and. Nothing, nothing worked. It was empty. And um, so we prayed about it. Deb Beland uh, knocked on it. You know, Scripture does say, uh, ask, seek, knock, right? So <laughs> <laughs> Deb knocked on it, and yeah, she'd get black copy, and Jonathan looked at it. Since that time, we have had perfectly crisp, clear, black copies. We have run thousands and thousands of copies, and it's still saying empty. And some people will say, well, I'm sure there's some explanation for that. Well, I want to give the glory to God, okay? God's giving us this uh, never-ending oil, (laughs) oil flask that is uh, working for us. And I think we need to realize we are dealing with the same God who made all things out of nothing in Genesis chapter 1. This is the God who had the Israelites, what is it, one to three million Israelites in the wilderness and there weren't any trains and trucks bringing food and filling the grocery stores. On the average, is one every three days here in Omaha. We've got only what 360,000 people. Here's one to three million people they're feeding every day, and liberals say that's impossible. We say God's not dependent upon circumstances. Okay. He- This is the same God who uh, fed um, uh, Elijah with the ravens. Uh, The same God who also kept that that oil flask from until the need was ended, kept it from running out. Uh, Malachi 3 says that God opens up the windows of heaven in blessing upon those who tithes. In other words, he's going beyond the so-called natural resources and the God who did that He can bring this harvest law to bear in your lives if by faith you lay claim to it. Don't just say, well, I just don't see any way it's going to happen. Don't worry about whether it can happen. (laughs) You trust the Lord who goes beyond what the resources are. And so even though this law says it's the same kind that is sowed as what is going to be harvested, we need to realize there is often a vast difference between the two as well, just like there's a huge difference between an oak tree and an acorn. Sometimes it just looks miraculously different how much God pours into our lives. Now, here's an objection people might give. Okay, Kaiser, if this law is really true, if it works like you say it works, how come Christ and the apostles were so poor? How come they were driving a beat-up Volkswagen, you know, and wearing thrift store clothes? Now, nothing against thrift store clothes. Uh, Even if I had plenty of money, I'd probably go to the thrift store. I love the thrift store. Okay, but uh, I think we misunderstand where Christ and the apostles were if we think of them as poor. Yes, they gave up everything. Christ said, "I have." He he had no house, no place to uh, which he could lay his head. But that did not mean when they, as stewards, gave up everything, as we are supposed to do. We're not supposed to own anything. Our house, everything needs to be at God's disposal for him to use as he pleases. That's a kingdom attitude. When they gave up everything, God poured back into their lives far more than they needed. Let me give you a few examples. In John 13, verse 29, it says they had a money bag that they regularly distributed to the poor out of. Well, if they're distributing to the poor, that means they have far more money than they need for their own present needs, and they're giving away money on a regular basis. Okay, God is pouring. He's investing. As they are good stewards of the money that they had, these apostles are investing in alms, investing in giving into the lives of others. The seamless robe that Jesus wore, if you look in archaeology books, you will find that that was a discovery Of how to do a seamless robe they'd never been able to do that before a a new discovery in the first century and let me tell you it was an expensive garment it would be sort of like buying a fifteen a fifteen hundred two thousand dollar suit nowadays actually back in those days as money because all clothing was expensive back then it was probably an even greater expenditure it was something that the middle class could not afford put it that way. And for sure, a poor person would not have that. Now, I doubt Christ spent the money on that. It was probably something that was given to him by a rich benefactor. But the point is, God gave, even though he had nothing, God gave into his life um, uh, this seamless robe. On the cross, Christ uh, put his mother into the care of John the Baptist. Well, John supplied a house for her. And it's just a few days later, you look in Acts well it's not maybe more than a few days but it's not much later you look in Acts 12 verse 12 a description of the house of Mary and you start reading up on that you realize this is a pretty substantial house that John was able to give to Mary uh, the mother of Jesus Uh, Bob uh, Fugate pointed out to me from Edersheim that uh, Edersheim on uh, volume 1 page 502 gives a, a lengthy description, I was reading that the <clears throat> the other day, of the house of Peter. Now, the, the Gospel gives a description of the house of Peter. I've got one verse here, but there's actually more verses, uh, Matthew eight fourteen to 15. And he discusses this house and the rooms that were in there compared to the houses of, of that time. And he says there is no question about the fact that Peter's house... Now, he had given up everything, right? He said... Uh, we, have given up, we have left all and followed you, which meant they had the same attitude as Christ. They were stewards. They they'd forsaken everything. God poured back into Peter's life a house that was in the range of the upper middle class in Israel. Okay, John and James were men of social means and standing. In Paul's travels, there were times that he had nothing, but there were other times when he was able to hire men to give alms. And... Um, to be treated with respect by strangers who saw him, which meant they didn't even know him. They were strangers. They immediately recognized from his clothing he was a man of standing. Uh, One commentator said, Paul had use of considerable money at this period, perhaps from his father's estate. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were wealthy enough that their first missionary journey was financed completely out of their own pocket. Okay, We're talking about people who had a fair amount of money at different periods in their life. Paul says, I've learned how to have nothing, and I've learned how to abound. Okay, He was perfectly satisfied. Lord, if you want to take away the things that I have, I'm still your steward. I'll be faithful with what you give or what you don't give. So it's the stewardship principle that is the key, and that God, as we invest in his kingdom, he pours back more than we can Uh, uh, more than we uh, can even need. And so seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. And my bottom line from this uh, uh, wordy sermon (laughs) is that I want you to begin praying these blessings into each other's lives. Begin expecting that there is going to be a harvest in the same tangible arena that you are sowing in and uh, to be looking with um, real expectation for that. Paul says, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything. And that's my prayer for you. Amen. Father God, we receive your word. With meekness, we believe it. And we want to act upon it. And Father, we just look forward with anticipation at the way in which you will prosper the work of the fingers of this church, as this church seeks to generously invest in ministry to the poor, as this uh, church uh, generously seeks to invest in the uh, lives of the Chalcedon Foundation and frontline fellowship, as we seek to uh, minister in each other's lives and uh, uh, not only fellowship together in terms of time spent, but Father, fellowship with each other in terms of things shared, I pray that you would just uh, give us great joy and delight in your purposes of the harvest field and that we would never lose faith and that we would never lose heart or give up or grow discouraged as we plant and invest in Omaha, knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.